When the OECD last implemented the PISA test and questionnaire, it asked 15-year-olds how they felt and thought about climate change and what they did about it. This was in early 2018, a few months before youth climate movements like Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion started taking off around the globe. So, even if PISA's findings about how students were acting on the environment in early 2018 have to take this into account, an interesting thing did emerge. 8% of students in OECD countries said they were aware of climate change, felt they understood the signs of climate change, and felt responsibility for the planet. But they were entirely not involved in any environmental action, not even turning off lights when they leave a room. What's holding them back? And how do we move from convictions to action on climate change? I'm Clara Young, and today I talked to Anuna de Wever, who maybe can help us answer this question. Anuna de Wever was one of the founders of the youth climate strike movement in Belgium. She is now a trade policy officer at the European NGO Climate Action Network. So hello, Anuna. Hello, Clara. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking the time. Now, I'm going to start with a little bit of recent history. How did you get started in the climate strike movement in 2018? Yeah, I, I started in, in, in 2018 and I was only 17 years old. And I definitely want to clarify that I am here in my capacity as an activist and not as a trade policy officer, uh, because I think that that is also the DNA of my identity and the biggest reason of why I do anything in the first place. And so this started when I was 17 and I did this because I was a human rights activist uh, for years. I, I started being a human rights activist when I was 14 years old. Uh, it was the first time that I uh, went to a refugee camp in the north of France to help NGOs and, and volunteering groups to help distribute foods and necessary resources. And uh, I was 14 years at the time and it was the first time that I was really confronted with what human rights abuses and global inequality look like. And being a white, uh, middle income privileged activist from Belgium, I directly felt the responsibility that I had to do something about this. So I became a human rights advocate uh, and activist. I started informing myself. I started talking to the people around me until I realized that the climate crisis is the biggest human rights crisis that this world has ever faced. And if I really wanted to do something meaningful about human rights, I had to become a climate activist. And so that's when in, in 2018, I started the climate strikes. Uh, in the follow-up of Greta Thunberg in Sweden, uh, starting the Fridays for Future movement. It was actually so much in the beginning that I hadn't even heard about Fridays for Future that I called the movement in Belgium Youth for Climate. But at the end of the day, it was just a lot of young people uh, coming on the streets, forming these international coalitions and movements of, of young people around the world, demanding climate action and climate ambition. And I've been doing this for over four years now, and I've only grown in that and learned so much more and understood so much more that this is all about a system change that we that we need to change. And I've seen also being so close to politics and, and policies that the power that we gained in that moment and still today with the youth has, has really changed a lot of things. How did that happen, your realization about the climate challenges that we're undergoing? Yeah, I mean, I've started, I started informing myself about human rights abuses and, and inequality and, and anti-racism and feminism and all those social injustices. And I started understanding that all of these are not only being enhanced because of the consequences of the climate crisis, but that the roots of that system 
are also causing the climate crisis and that it is systems of white supremacy and the system of colonialism and systems of racism that have caused us to to be in this climate crisis in the first place. And so I feel like that should also be the baseline of the narrative of what climate activists around the world are, are, are talking about and using, that if we don't see this as a system change and we don't understand that inequality and discrimination and exclusion and exploitation and extractivism are at the roots of the climate crisis, we're not actually going to fundamentally change the system that we are fighting. Did you learn this about this at school? Um, was your school involved in any climate change action? How did you begin to think about it? Yeah, I wish I could say that that was the case, but unfortunately, I, I learned very, very little about climate crisis in school. Um, we talked about it maybe in one lecture in six years of uh, high school, so it was really ridiculous. And we talked a little bit about colonialism, obviously, uh, but way too little in, in consideration that, for example, I am from Belgium, we have a massive history with colonization in Congo, and we barely even talked about that. And I feel like that's a really big problem in the educational system and in schools in general, is that young people are not being taught these things. And for me to actually figure out these things, put the puzzle pieces together, I've had to read so many books and articles, listen to podcasts, um, inform myself. And this is also why I'm so happy that these podcasts are being recorded and people are trying to inform each other because it's such a powerful medium to make activists. It's the reason that I actually felt confident enough to start my activism in the first place because it was not my environment and it was not my school that did it for me. What about your friends? Did your friends help you put together the pieces of the puzzle? Were they involved? Well, Currently, I have a lot of friends, obviously, that are very engaged, but at the time, there were very little. Obviously, my friends were mostly um, in my high school or, or around that, and just young people were not actually talking about it at all, even about human rights. We would talk about crisis happening if something was going on, but we wouldn't really identify with that, and we wouldn't really see the systemic cause of that. Fortunately, my parents uh, were very much aware of this. Both my parents are activists, so they did talk to me about that a lot while growing up. And I really just remember a lot of the, the table conversations where other people would talk about homework, we would be discussing geopolitics. And I feel like that's also a really big reason of why I became so interested in actually wanting to do things and why also my sisters both are activists and are trying to change things is because it's, uh, I think it's in our DNA, to be honest. <laughs> in your DNA and, and around the family dinner table. Yeah, exactly. It's all around. So, so yeah, I, I am very grateful about that. I definitely feel my parents have been a, a major contributor to where I am today with my activism. Now, the climate strikes and other protest action were gaining a lot of momentum around the world by 2020, and then COVID hit. So... What happened? What did you do? Because at the time you were still organizing everything in Belgium and you were, I think, quite close to Fridays for Future. Yeah, absolutely. And it was super difficult for us. We got a huge hit with COVID because obviously our biggest tool was the physical mobilizations and like literally getting millions of people on the streets. 
that was how we put the pressure and all of that just stopped. So we had to move a lot of things online. We did webinars. Uh, we made climate action plans with experts. We were advocating a lot behind the scenes and putting pressure on, um, on policies through online campaigns and trying to mobilize in that way. But it was definitely difficult, especially when you look at the media landscape. Uh, behind the scenes, we've always been very prevalent and, and we've always been able to put a lot of pressure. But in order to actually uh, gain momentum in the media landscape and, and become a prevalent part of the, the public eye, it's important if you want to mobilize people. And that became very difficult during COVID. And, and we definitely have to, you know, think about ways that we can keep doing that because even today, like there's big momentum. Now, you know, talking about the media landscape, uh, it's even more crowded now. There's a whole host of crises. There's inflation. There's the war in Ukraine. There's so many things going on. How do you keep people focused on climate change with all this swirling around? I feel like we need to link the crisis and it's, it, there is a super obvious link. So we just need to communicate it. Obviously, fossil fuels have caused conflict around the world for decades uh, because it's a finite resource. And we see that the geopolitical struggles around fossil fuels always lead us into conflict. And I feel like now with the, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine is actually also an opportunity for us to really seriously divest from fossil fuel and phase out fossil fuels and become uh, energy efficient and go to renewables. And I think that that's extremely necessary for us to communicate that to people. And for example, the World Economic Forum did actually a study where they where they wanted to see if people were against climate action now because of the raising energy prices. And people are not. People realize that this is not because of climate action, but because of our dependency on fossil fuels. So we need to phase out this addiction of fossil fuels within our society if we, if we want to stop these things. And so I feel like linking these crises together, first of the system and the roots of the system that I was talking about earlier, and also understanding current crises that are going on. Why are these energy uh, prices uh, rising? And what can we do? How can we tackle both this energy crisis and the climate crisis in one go by actually finally embracing the solutions that have been on the table by the IPCC and others for so long. I feel like we should be communicating that very much. And I think that there as well, the media has a big responsibility as, for example, in the Belgian media landscape, you see a lot of politicians who are saying, yeah, you see, we need to do more oil drilling and we need to get more gas because we have a problem. This is not true. Fossil fuels are a finite resource that we can just need not keep depending on. We know that economic growth in a capitalist society is dependent on fossil fuels and that is dependent on oppression and extractivism. And it's going to keep leading us into crisis like this if we don't divest. So real like information in, 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 in this point is extremely important for people to understand what's going on and, and what we can do in the opportunity that is here today. Could you talk to us about how climate change and gender intersect? Yeah, I feel like intersectionality is crucial to the solutions to the climate crisis. Because let me put it straight, if you look at the elite, the power political elite right now today, the majority is white, male, cisgender and straight. And these are a lot of privileges that a lot of people don't have. But 
you can see, if we look at the policies that are being made on an international level, that these privileges are reflected in that and they are excluding a lot of people from a lot of different, uh, who have a lot of different intersections in their identities. And for example, women and girls around the world are being marginalized much more uh, because of the consequence of the climate crisis, but also just in, in every policy because they're not being taken into account because they're not even a part of the discussion often. And for example, for non-binary or, or gender diverse people, the data doesn't even exist because we don't even think about that. And so I feel like if we want to change this system and the roots of this system, which is that oppression and inequality that I was talking about, we need to take intersectionality into account. But that also means that the decision-making spaces in which we actually design those policies need to be much more inclusive and accessible and diverse than they are today. Have you noticed whether socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage and how it plays into how people choose to tackle climate change? And how does knowing that help you plan and carry out climate change campaigns? Yeah, I definitely see that because I feel like very often the narrative is now that climate movements want people to individually pay for the climate crisis. And we absolutely don't. We want the system that is based on fossil fuels to change. And who are those people? Those are big, rich, polluting countries in the global north, especially, that need to pay off for the damages of, of the climate crisis. And so what is really important here is that we understand that the whole campaign about individual responsibility was launched by fossil fuel companies in the first place. We should not be perpetuating these narratives. It is a system change. It is not individual change. And so when we take uh, measures and I can see this very much in my home country in Belgium as well. Very often these measures are very antisocial. So governments will say everybody needs to buy an electric car and renovate their house by 2030 for energy efficiency. Just do it. As if people can do that. There are so many people who don't have the economic re and financial resources to do those things. And so therefore, it's extremely important that climate movements work together with social justice movements and anti-racism movements and the intersectional movements that we were talking about to really push forward the narratives that this should not be landing on our individual shoulders, but that those people and those stakeholders, which is actually a minority, are going to take the responsibility of this crisis. When I was looking at the engagement map on the Fridays for Future website, and I know that you are not directly involved with them anymore, but you might have some insight into this, is that while there are protests that are happening around the world, there's fewer in the global south, particularly in Asia and Africa, with the exception of India. You know, what's your insight into, I mean, I would assume it's exactly the same dynamic as what you just said about, about privilege. Absolutely. The, to, to, to just be very frank and blunt about this, to be an activist is to have privileges. If you can protest, if you can come on the streets and raise your voice, if you are given a platform to actually spread a message, these are all privileges that I, for example, have and a lot of other people don't. And this is why I also feel like it's so important that especially uh, privileged, white, middle class activists like me from Europe actually take this responsibility and do more because we are also a part of the minority of the people in this world that actually have the resources to do more. And obviously... We are not the ones to blame. I'm also young. I belong to the generation that is going to have to face the worst consequences of the climate crisis. And I belong to the last generation that can actually spark meaningful change in the negotiation processes around the policies of the future. 
Um, so I am also, you know, feeling these consequences and I'm also fighting for my future. But the fact that this is about my future and not about my present, my livelihood, my, my current, this current moment in time is a privilege. And so therefore, I think it's extremely important that, that we take this responsibility as young people who can. And I have a lot of these conversations, of course, with uh, colleague activists from Africa and from Asia who are saying it's extremely important to, to come on the streets, to organize these protests where politically uh, have these massive backlashes, but also we don't have the funding because we do live in countries that are being systematically oppressed. And this is very true. And this also happens uh, because of the global north and because of rich polluting countries like mine. And so therefore, I feel like building these bridges and coalitions internationally, not just between activists, but between movements is so crucial because otherwise, if we just have our fights on a national level, we're not going to get there. We're not going to understand what we're actually trying to to do. When you talk about that in in the global north, we have greater responsibility to take on climate change. I'm going to go back to this OECD report on environmental education that just came out. And its findings were that an average of one-fifth of students in OECD countries took part in some kind of environmental action, and one-fifth didn't at all. But one thing that really jumped out was that a quarter of 15-year-olds in rich countries like the UK, France, Germany, and Italy said they weren't involved in any kind of environmental action at all. Does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me at all because I see that with people around me as well. I have lost a lot of friends since I've become an activist because they don't want to take the responsibility. They don't want to be informed. They don't want to know. And on one side, can you blame them? They're young people. They also just want to live their life. On the other side, yeah, you know, this system is, is so horrible and it's still oppressing people every single day. Being aware of your privileges to me is the bare minimum. And I see that with a lot of young people, they don't have that. And it frustrates me definitely. But I think that this is something that, first of all, the youth climate movement changed tremendously. I think if you would have done a poll like this, uh, four years ago, it would have had very different results. And I feel like we also continue mobilizing young people around the world every day with the actions that we organize. But I definitely think that there needs to be more people. And I think that that's also the main message that I try to spread everywhere as a young activist is we need you. I feel like a lot of young people have this feeling of, yeah, if it would be that bad, somebody would do something, but they're really not. And there are so many scientists and experts also like joining us in this fight because they just don't know what to do anymore. There is a report after report after report saying humanity is not ready. This is code red and, and, and nothing happens politically. And so I feel like, again, the media has a big responsibility to clarify that, that actually nothing is happening in the current trajectories towards a world of 2.4 degrees is not a world anybody wants to live in. And I think young people need to believe in their power again. And I think that schools and the educational system in that also um, really have a big responsibility because it really was because of my parents and my background and our, you know, dinner table conversations that I wanted to do these things in the first place. You know, talking about what schools can do, the, the report found that, that schools in Jordan, Indonesia, Thailand, and Turkey were quite active on climate change, and therefore, as a result, their students were. Have you come across this in your activism work? 
Yeah, I mean, this it's incredible to hear. And I think that this is the solution. And I have definitely heard about this a lot is, um, you know, a lot of the young activists, when I, when I would be organizing a lot of the physical strikes would come to me afterwards and they would tell me the story of why they became an activist. And a lot of them said, yeah, I had this lecture or my professor mentioned this thing or we saw this crisis and we quickly discussed. And sometimes it's a 10 minute conversation. Sometimes it's a whole day. But in some people, it really sparks something to do something. And I feel like information there is a the first part. But the second part is also that young people don't believe in their own power. I feel like sometimes our generation doesn't understand how much power we hold if we would collectively mobilize the way we've done and even more than that we change so many things it's been massive and i know that because i've been on the front lines of that so i feel like not just informing young people but also reminding them of the power they have is crucial um, and i really hope that schools and educational systems and also just teachers and parents and friends and family remind themselves that it's also on them to talk about these things and raise these things between themselves Well, thank you very much for speaking to us, Anuna de Weber. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and I, I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to OECD Education Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the OECD's work on education, skills, and the environment, check out our Twitter page. We're at, at OECD EDU Skills. <laughs> <laughs>